Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, we need your grace. It's a tra- crazy time of year, the very time that we sing about peace on earth, goodwill to men. We often uh, struggle with strife, Christmas wars. <laughs> with the secular world and we're all over God's green acre getting to parties and finishing up this or that. So we need time to just, just reflect and be, be close to you. So help us today to know and to learn just in a very basic way, what you expect of us. Sometimes we complicate things, but at least help us to know in a very basic way today, what does it mean to be ready for your great and glorious coming? What does it mean to be, standing when you appear and seeing that our redemption is at hand. So teach us today, Lord, out of a very simple text through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, now I want to read as an opening for our reflection, a line that I'm sure I mentioned to you last week, but it asks this question. I'm in the book of Malachi and I'm in the third chapter. And it simply says that who will endure the day of the Lord's coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, or like a fuller's lie. And he will sit refining and purifying, and he will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like gold or silver, so that they may offer due sacrifice to the Lord. Now, talk a little bit about today. A recipe for readiness is kind of the informal title of the talk. A recipe for readiness. But before we get into that particular recipe, I want to talk about this idea of how does the Lord refine us? How does he get us ready for his great and glorious coming? Again, we're either going to him or he's coming to us. And so you you, you see the basic situation, which is that we've got to be ready for that day. So how, how do we get ready? There are two. It says here that he will refine. He will refine us. And, and so you probably know a little bit about the refining process, maybe some of you more than I do. But I'll say this much, that the refining process is, is, is meant to purify gold or silver or some other metals as well. And what you do is you basically you heat them up to the melting point and then the, the specific gravities of different metals kind of fall out like, like oil and vinegar do, you know, and then you can skim off. Let's just say you wanted to skim off the oil and just have the pure vinegar. And then you do it again. And, you know, there's a little bit left and you finally get to the point where you have pure vinegar. Well, same thing with refining fire. You take gold or silver or some other metal and you put it in and it's almost never. It's almost never all by itself. Gold is added mixed in with other stuff. So but it has a specific gravity. So you melt it. You can see it. And then you skim off what is undesirable. And you leave the rest and you have pure gold at the end of the process. Now, that involves so fire. So, again, he's like a refiner's fire. So, in other words, who may stand when he appears? 
Only those who have been refined, only those who have been prepared for his great coming. With that in mind, I want to talk about purification in a wide sense and then focus in on a very practical, it's just one line from scripture. But before going to that one line, let's talk about something called passive and active purifications. There's a distinction made in spiritual theology about, again, active and passive purification. Active purifications are those things that we take upon ourselves. Let's say, especially in Lent, but sometimes too in Advent, I'm going to give up, I don't know, wine, or I'm going to give up, you know, Facebook. Some people go on a Facebook fast for Lent, you know, but I'm going to give up something. That's what we call an active purification, or I'm going to take up some discipline of prayer. And every day I'm going to do this, you know, system of prayer. Now, that's called active purification. We actively do these things. But I got news for you. That's never going to be enough. It's just not even close. <laughs> what the Lord really has to do. And so what we need to also depend on are what we call the passive purifications. Namely, these things where the Lord through his work in our lives, purifies us. We would never do these things because in a way we couldn't. Think about trying to perform an appendectomy on yourself. You're going to take out your own appendix. You couldn't do it. First of all, you'd never inflict that amount of pain on yourself. Secondly, you could hardly even see to do it correctly. So what the Lord does is he takes us through some sad, you know, tragic as, as well as difficult and sometimes painful passages in our life. We would never choose to go there. But he leads us through them as if to purify us. Like, you know, we think of Job, right? And all he went through. And he says, look, the Lord knows the way I go. And when I come through this, I shall come forth as pure gold. But Job would have never chosen to lose his family, at least the, the main part of it. He would never have chosen to lose all of his things and sit there with a pot shirt scraping his leprous, you know, or psoriatic skin. That wouldn't be something he would choose. So sometimes God has to lead us through, like a surgeon has to lead us through these, um, you know, these basic things that are painful. We would not do them to ourselves. We couldn't. But God is willing to do this now. Oh, he's cruel. He's cruel. See, that's the immediate sort of childish response. Right. But he's not cruel. God is saying, look, this is necessary for you in order for you to be prepared and strong enough to endure both the day of my coming and the glorious light and heat of heaven. So with that in mind, I just wanted to make that distinction at the beginning here, namely that in getting us ready, we need to both engage in what we call active purifications, which we're in charge of. We decide, we make decisions, and then we also need to accept in our life passive purifications. I don't know if you've ever heard this distinction. It's kind of um, something we know we learn in sort of advanced spiritual theology, but it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, this idea that we have to really accept that the Lord's going to have to do some things that we don't want. This is going to hurt a little, he says. This is going to hurt a little. You know, sometimes the doctor will say that to you. You know, I just came out of a little minor surgery on Friday, and I'm in my recovery mode right now. You know, a little bit of soreness, a little bit of pain here and there, discomforts, but all in the end towards healing, right? Towards healing. With all that in mind, I do want to now, though, shift our focus to what we would call the act of purifications, those things that we intentionally choose, while not forgetting that we also need the passive purifications. And as we go through these act of purifications, we will see 
And that the Lord also admixed in, even in those, that some of these passive purifications, the purifications he does for us. And we'll see how this all comes together. Now, I am going to a single verse of scripture. Again, the title, A Recipe for Readiness. Okay, the Lord's coming. So how do I get ready to meet him? Okay, I want to point you to a text that basically describes the four pillars of the Christian life. Four pillars. And I'm in Acts chapter 2, and I'm in verse 42. Acts 2 and verse 42. Now, it says simply this. They, I'm talking about the, this is the early Christians, right? They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the communal life, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. So four basic pillars of the Christian life, namely these. It says here, the teaching of the apostles, the communal life, the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. All right. So let's begin to look at these things. If you say, well, what, what's the basic recipe that I should follow? You know, well, you know, take your medicine. And the medicines are described here. Now, you'll first of all notice that the text here says they devoted themselves. They didn't just dabble in this. They didn't just say, when I get a few minutes, I'll go to church, maybe sometime next month. They didn't, you know, just get around to prayer or reading of scripture. These are things they devoted themselves to. See, this is more than just, again, I'm a A&P, an Ashes and Palms Catholic or a, uh, an Easter and Christmas Catholic. Uh, this is more than just, you know, I, I kind of go and it fits into my schedule and I get around to praying occasionally when it, when it suits me. That's not what's described. This is what's described here is this devotion, this devotion. Now, the Greek word here, I believe, I don't have the Greek text in front of me, but the Greek word extend it, it is a kind of a word that talks about extending or stretching oneself out in a path. Hmm? And so you're not just sort of ambling around. You're walking with big steps. You're stretching yourself out. You're consistently applying this in your life. All right. So let's be clear that in order for these four pillars to have their effect, we need to see them as something that we regularly do, not, not just dabble in. But every Sunday at Mass, um, frequent confession, maybe once a month or so, depending on you know, your struggle with any mortal sins. Uh, likewise, again, uh, the communal life, habitually coming together like we do here, whether online or in the church and different groups that we have, but actively looking for people who will help me to keep the faith. And then, again, this idea of both the prayers, both personal prayers, but also the public prayer of the church, all right, that we call the liturgy. All right. Now, let's begin to look at the four elements. It says they devoted themselves, first of all, to the teaching of the apostles. So what's the teaching of the apostles? Well, remember, in this very earliest stage of the church, you know, they didn't have some book they could just pick up and say, well, here it says over here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or... Paul and Peter and James and John, all of them wrote over. They don't have that yet, but they, they do have the teaching of the apostles. Some of it in written form. Some of it has been that the apostles have personally visited them. Um, remember, this is very early in Acts. So we're, we're talking about the apostles still being present and they're giving a teaching. Now, to us who live in the latter days that we are in, we see that for us, it's, it's a written text, it's, it, but it's also a text that's announced 
by the church in her life, in her liturgy. And like we were talking earlier about St. Lucy, you know, Saint, Saint, Santa Lucia, Santa Lucia, as they say in the Latin. We have all of these, these things that we, we come together. And in that context of the lived faith, this word of the apostles is celebrated. It is repeated. It is announced and so on. Yes, it's repeated in the liturgy, the, the sacred liturgy. The whole first half of mass is devoted to the study of God's word. But it is also repeated generally throughout the church when we gather in fellowship, when we're, we're here together. Uh, is this a liturgy? In a certain sense, it is. It's not a formal liturgy like we use the term, but we are gathered and we're reflecting on the words of God's apostles and evangelists. Now, it says the teaching of the apostles, but I think that we can say also as Catholics that we embrace the Old Testament as well. And hence, we want to see that the first pillar of the Christian life is to be deeply immersed into the Holy Scriptures. That these scriptures are so powerful for us, and so we've made such a study of them, that we can now begin to say, I begin to think the way these teachings are given to me in the scriptures. My priorities are different. I see the world differently. I know more and more about why I was made, who made me, and why I was made. I know my goal, my destination. You know, God says, my ways are not your ways, but I begin to learn them, right? Your ways, O Lord, make known to me. Your teachings bestow to me, says Psalm 119. So we begin to see that our mind and heart become transformed. We no longer think in worldly categories that the goal in life is to have the most money or the best looks or, you know, the, the most powerful friends. The goal in life is to die loving God and my neighbor so I can go home and be with God forever. That's so different, you know, even from the way we raise our kids. I mean, let's be honest, you know, we're all kind of locked into this system that says, I got to get my kid a math tutor because if he doesn't, if she doesn't get a better math grade, they might not get into the big college. And if they don't get into the big college, they may not get a lot of money and access, you know, and never mind that a lot of these quote big colleges are cesspools of immorality and are teaching things that would just utterly make the early Christians blush, so the more we immerse ourselves in God's word, we start to see, look, my priority is different. Look, I, all things being equal, I want my kid to have some access so they can have a, a decent life, you know, make an income, raise a family. I, yeah, I get that. But we're all focused on that. And we don't care if they know the Ten Commandments or not. But by God, they better know algebra. You know, and uh, you're like, well, OK. But would that we had that same urgency about other things in the spiritual life. Now, immersing ourselves in the word of God, we start to see and think of things differently. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so higher my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Okay? So we have to say, Lord, I, but I, I need to at least get in sync with the way you see things. I need to put on my gospel glasses and see the world more clearly, more soberly, more different, differently than most people see it. And so this is this idea of just staying close to the word of God so that our lives are uh, transformed. And I can say this much, it works in this sense that I have been in my life as a, I'm 60 now, but Let's just say for the 40 of my six years, these later 40 years, I've been pretty serious about 
studying God's word. I went to the seminary, you know, in my early 20s. You know, I just I start to study this word and it started to come into my heart, my mind. And, you know, I, I'm so different. I don't even want to tell you some of the foolish things I used to think. I'm embarrassed by them now, you know, but I, I see things differently. My priorities are different. Uh, my a sense of goal and what, what's, what's essential and important is different. All of this comes from that steady power of the word of God coming into me. Now, it comes in different ways, not just when I sit down and study it, but when I pray it. So we pray the breviary. We preached every day are required to read a fairly substantial amount of scripture every day in the divine office. You know, this is a powerful thing. And it has put the word of God kind of on a memory loop. I mean, it's just I can quickly think of things like, you know, oh, yeah, I just, you know, that's the psalm. That's, that's you know, I, I know already and I, I, I read scripture. I also prepare for mass every day, reading the daily reading. I also then conduct Bible studies and things like this. These things put this word of God deep in my heart and in my mind. And this word is not just an informative word. It is a transformative word. That is to say. If you will read this word, it is not simply uh, informative, it's performative and transformative. This word has the power to change your life and my life. Now, we talked about this. I don't know if we talked about it last week, but I know in other sessions I've conducted, I've tried to emphasize with you uh, Pope Benedict writing under the pseudonym Joseph Ratzinger. Joe, the guy from Germany, okay, wrote a, a three-volume set called Jesus of Nazareth. And he talks about the word gospel. And the, the word gospel is usually translated by most people, good news. And he says, this is not incorrect, but it misses the far deeper understanding of the word evangelion in Greek and evangelium in Latin. An evangelion this word was taken up by the apostles to become the, the genre in which they were speaking. So with that in mind, the word evangelion, let's just go back to its original. It was a word issued by the emperor. And it began in a way that most of you recognize. He says there would be one of the ways news was given was that these town criers, they were called karuks, the heralds, the town criers, the karuks would just sit in the, come into the town square and cry out news that had been sent to him from the next town over. And he says, behold, he would say, I bring you today glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now, that should sound familiar to you because that's how the angel, um, you know, announced the birth of Jesus, right? But let's continue. So the herald, the herald says, behold, I bring you tidings of glad joy, which will be today for all the people. The emperor is raising taxes. Now, that doesn't sound like good news. It's not cheery news. But here's the key point. It's a word that changes you. Your life is different now because of this word. You're going to owe more money. But let's take another example. Behold, I bring you glad tidings, great joy, which will be for all the people. Today, the, the emperor has chosen to pave the road between Laodicea and Thyatira. Hey, that's good news. And it's changing. It's life changing. It means I can get between Thyatira and Laodicea a lot more easily. I can sell my goods. A lot of things are opening up to me now. That's great. So, so it, whether it's good news or not, the point is not so much that it's good news, but that it is transformative. Your life is now different because of this word from the emperor. Now, what the emperors falsely claim 
or at least can only claim in a kind of a relative worldly sense, the Gospels claim in in an absolute sense. If you will receive this word, this teaching of the apostles, your life will change. Your thinking will change. Your priorities will change. Your mind and your heart will change. You will be changed by this word that you read if you will read it with faith and attentiveness. Again, I'm a witness. Many things in my life have changed. I've seen sins put to death. Grace has come alive. I've seen new visions, new insights, things I never thought I would see. All these things come from just that steady, daily working with the word of God. It's changed my life. All right. It is, therefore, the first pillar, then, of the Christian life. And how do you get ready to meet the Lord? Number one, pillar number one, the teaching. They devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles, right? So that's number one. Now, remember, therefore, maybe to put it in more modern terms, we would say, you know, you are devoted to the study of God's sacred scriptures, his holy word, not just the New Testament. Some people think the teaching of the apostle means only the four gospels. Remember, Paul was an apostle. Peter, James, and John, who all wrote epistles, they too were all apostles. So the whole of the New Testament is the teachings of the apostles, all right? Somebody says, well, Jesus never said anything about blah, blah, blah. He said, well, I know, but his apostles did. Well, but, but that's not Jesus. I said, no. He said, whoever hears you is hearing me. So this, this gospel This word, this teaching of the apostles is what we would call the whole of the New Testament. However, by inclusion, we want to not just discard the Old Testament. We're not Marcionites who rejected the Old Testament. We are Christians who accept all of God's word and we read it backwards. We read the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament, but we read the Old Testament. Okay, good. So that's number one. And well, I'll get some questions from you and comments at the end here, but just keep that in mind if you have a question. Number two, it says they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the communal life. The Greek word at the root of this is the koinonia. Now, you see, unfortunately, we hear fellowship or communal life. We think coffee and donuts. We think, oh, I'm going to join the the women's group or that's all good. But it's much deeper and richer than that. Koinonia in the Greek speaks of an intimacy, of the support and a communal experience with others that's deep and rich so that we hold each other accountable. We help each other when we're falling or struggling. We're there for those who have had losses. And we also are there to rejoice. We confirm one another. We encourage one another. We support one another. Now, there's a saying in the book of Ecclesiastes, woe to the solitary man, for if he falls, he has no one to lift him up. Okay, You're going to need in your life people who can lift you up. Now, we have lots of different kinds of friends in this life, don't we? Some of them are just professional friends we know at work or whatever we don't we don't get into the deeper things with them they're really more acquaintances or maybe work comrades or something but they're not really those deeper friendships but you know one of the problems we have in the modern world today is the demise of friendship now who's a friend a friend is someone who knows almost everything about you an acquaintance no not it wouldn't even be right for you to announce everything about you you want to be Discreet, but are there those people that you walk with? Maybe there's some family members, maybe they're close friends who know almost everything about you and and you know about them. And there's this time when you need to pick up the phone and call somebody 
you know, you can do it. And there's a lot of people that don't really see, think they have people like that in their life today. You know, years ago, you'd almost maybe know never not go more than 50 miles from your home, from birth to, to death. But now people are jet set. They're all over the place. They're moving consist constantly following, you know, the job or whatever. But where's the family? Where's the extended family? Where's the support network that we all need? Now, let me just tell you in my own experience, and I, I've always been a great advocate that priests, especially pastors, should not be moved so often. So I've always told our personnel director, look, if the cardinal really needs me to go somewhere, I'm under his authority. But don't move me just to move me. I have no wish to leave. Now, why is that? It isn't just because I don't like change. Well, that's part of it. But but I don't like change because I always stand before the people here at the parish and I say this to them, look, for you, I'm your pastor. With you, I'm your brother. But from you, I'm your son. Because, you know, I've been in this community here for the better part of 25 years. There was a brief period in the middle where I went over and pastored at another parish. Again, a great parish, St. Thomas More. Loved it, had a great time. But they decided to send me back here. These people have known me since 1993, which is getting to be a long time ago, y'all. I don't know if you noticed. You, know, you think the 90s are like, oh, it's just yesterday. But it's not. It's, you know, 25 and some years ago, you know, 28. So you start to see that there is this experience I've had where some of these people I know now, and I'm, I'm celebrating funerals and things, but they were my elders when I came here. I was the priest, but they were the elders. They were the ones who took me in and they talked about faith and they sang hymns. And I looked at their lives, their examples, and I'm like, oh, wow. And I, I learned from them. And that's community. That's richness. And when I went through a difficult period in my mid-30s, the whole parish was here for me. They would surround me with prayer. The old, the old ladies say, come on, Pastor, we got to pray over you. And they would just surround me and pray. He, Lord, he's anointed, he's appointed, and he's assigned. Now help him to know your strength and your glory. They were praying, praying, praying. And I mean, I'll never forget that. And I, I saw these were not people, mostly African-Americans, who came from some kind of, you know, you know, posh existence where they didn't have, quote, a worry in the world. These were people who had struggled to face discrimination and hatred. These were people who knew real suffering. And so their witness to me was always very credible. And I tell you, that's community, you see where you can even take up your priest and mold him by, by God's grace, of course, into the man that God has called him to be. And that's your role. That's, that's our role for each other. It's partly my role as a pastor, but it's also my role to receive. So this idea of koinonia, community, is much more than coffee and donuts and wearing dumb name tag. Hi, Bob. Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm Bob, too. You know, you know lovely. Uh, go for it. But that is not what is meant here by the communal life or the fellowship, as some translations say. It is much richer. It's where we love each other. We hold each other accountable, but we also encourage and support. And again, I'll say in this community, I have some folks who have come to me and say, I think you're doing the wrong thing here. Or I think that uh, what you said today was very something that you should consider that was hurtful for certain people. You know, you, you get the idea. There's this interaction, this back and forth. It isn't just, you know, consolation all the time. It's sometimes rebuke. It's something that you see so much of this today is lacking in people's lives, right? Faith is communal as well as individual and personal. 
You know, the I, if you look in the catechism, there's the I believe, we believe section where they're saying at one level, faith has to be communal. You are not to go and invent your own religion. Don't you do it. If you do, you probably, it probably won't go very well for you and you probably go to hell. We used to call things like that idolatry, right? So in other words, receive from the community the faith that is proclaimed to you. And again, also this work of the community, the scriptures and then the teachings of the church, receive this, you see, and walk and read it, read the scriptures in tune with the church that gave them to you. But live in a community, namely the church or your experience of the church at your local parishes, live there, work there, love one another and receive and this is the essential thing. It's very neglected today in anybody's notion of church, okay? But it's essential. It's essential. Jesus did not write a book. He founded a church, a communion or a community of disciples and apostles who were then called to go and grow this community into a worldwide communion, okay? I'll leave it at that. I can always go on and on. But I'm going to tell you right now, an awful lot of problems today in the church and in people comes down to their a lack of good ecclesiology. What is the church? Who has the power to announce the word of God? Who has the power and authority to preach it and teach it authoritatively and interpret it? See? Oh, it's just me and Jesus. I just go with this book and I... No, that's bad ecclesiology. You need the communal life. Yes, the hierarchical aspect of the church, but also that communal aspect. Most of us learn the faith at our mother's knee, okay? That's where it comes from. Who can believe if they have not heard, for faith comes by hearing? And who can believe if they have not heard? And who can hear unless someone is sent, okay? And so, again, these are the things that we have to see. So we've gone through two of them. The, the first two pillars are, again, this beautiful concept, the teaching of the apostles. Number two, the communal life. Number three, the breaking of the bread, the breaking of the bread. Notice this isn't just having a meal. This isn't just come on over for a little fish fry next Friday. You know, this is not that. It's, it's The breaking of the bread is the ancient biblical and early Christian way of describing the Eucharist. Now, by extension, though, I want to say that it mentions here the Eucharist, but by extension, all the sacraments. So the question for you and me is, how are we getting ready to meet God? Are we following the teaching of the apostles, immersing our heart and mind in it? Are we living the communal life where, again, understood properly the way I tried to describe it to you? Number three, then are we living a sacramental life? Some sacraments you receive only once. Other sacraments, especially communion and, and can holy confession, we receive frequently. And the question for you is, are you that way? We absolutely need the sacraments. They're like medicine for us. We need to be baptized. We need to be confirmed. We need a holy communion and to receive it frequently, if not every Sunday, certainly close to that. And we're, we're meant to be at Mass every Sunday under pain of mortal sin. If we willfully refuse that. Why? Well, Jesus says, look, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no life in you. So it's like the manna in the desert. If those people had not eaten that manna, they would have died. That was the food that sustained them. And it's the same for us. We cannot go on thinking, oh, I don't have to go to communion or mass. You know, I just take a walk in the woods. You know, this kind of stuff that some people talk about. By the way, you've heard me before, but I'm going to say it again. I don't think they take a walk in the woods either. I just don't, I don't, I don't believe them. Okay. 
But again, Jesus has told us this. He says, you've got to receive my flesh and blood. You've studied elsewhere, I'm sure most of you, because you're way above average. You've studied the, the bread of life discourse in John 6. I mean, Jesus suffered a lot. He lost a lot of followers. So important it was it for him to feed us with his body and blood that he was willing to lose many disciples so that he could save some. This is not just some like nice little option, a way of accessorizing your faith to go to church and receive, quote, the wafer. You don't go and receive, you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord. He's no wafer. And, and you need this food. And he himself says that if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So if you're not even taking your most basic food, how are you going to have the strength to make a journey? Or likewise with confession, because we want to receive communion worthily, we need regular confession. And if we're aware of any mortal sin, we should confess prior to receiving Holy Communion. Now, I, I try to help people by hearing confessions before every Mass on Sunday. You know, I don't want anyone to come there and be like, well, I can't go to communion today. Now, if, if that's the case, they come late or whatever, then fine. You know, don't receive communion. Better to receive, not to receive communion than to receive, you know, an unworthy, make an unworthy communion, right? St. Paul says that it, it, it does not bring blessings. It brings burdens. So with that in mind, those two, those two sacraments in particular, but likewise to enter into a marriage or the priesthood of religious life, all of these aspects of entering into a walk, a life with the Lord, walking with others, with someone else, you know, is, is essential. So I don't want to go on and on with the whole sacramental theology, but to simply say to you that these sacraments are essential for our salvation. And the Lord didn't just give them as some nice little cheesy way of accessorizing your marriage. He didn't give you a few wooden nickels so you can, you know, remember and have some trinkets. These are essential and they're at the heart. And the early church disciples devoted themselves to this breaking of the bread, the mass, and by extension, all the sacraments. They devoted themselves to study of God's word and they devoted themselves to holy fellowship, koinonia, and the final one is the prayers. It says the prayers and it says, and the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. Now, here we have both individual and communal prayer, right? Now, Jesus says about personal prayer, he says, you know, you better pray. You better stay awake and pray because otherwise you're going to give way to temptation. Now, a lot of us don't immediately realize how temptations have the power over us if we're not praying. We don't necessarily see the connection between praying and then not being tempted. Sometimes you go to pray and you're tempted more than ever. You know, some people say that I'm sitting there trying to pray and all these terrible thoughts come to my mind and, uh, and so on. But you see, this is the place where, again, you got to stay in that longer walk. You got to stay there, sit there quietly with the Lord and endure some of these things and let him say to you, look, I know you're being tested and tried. I know that. But my grace is sufficient and I want you to keep your eyes on me. And over time, this then puts many, many sinful habits to death. Once again, I'll just say I'm a witness that for the last 40 of my 60 years, I have devoted myself to the prayers. And uh, I'm not saying I'm never distracted. I'm never saying I'm always perfect in prayer. I'm simply saying I show up and I strive to pay attention to what the Lord is doing in my life and saying. And this has I've seen sins and bad attitudes and sinful habits and patterns put to death. I've seen new and good things come alive. And I just say it works. Now, it isn't like, shazam, 
day one, you pray, and all of a sudden, all temptations have gone away. That's not the nature of our relationship with God, who is a careful and delicate heart surgeon. You know, if you're going to pick a heart surgeon, you want the guy that's got the record for being speedy, getting that heart done, surgery done right away within 10 minutes, or the guy that says, nope, this takes about closer to an hour and a half, and we're going to have to go very carefully. Well, you want the careful guy, you know? So we're always in a rush, you know, but at the end of the day, when it comes to heart surgery, you don't want the heart surgeon who's in a rush, do you? I don't. You know, I want the heart surgeon who can work carefully and take the time he needs. All right. So we have to see that this is the way it is with the Lord. It's got a lot of work to do in our life. Now, I wanted to keep it simple because, you know, sometimes when we talk about like a recipe for readiness, you throw so much stuff into the hopper that you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. Just four basic things. One verse of scripture really sums up an awful lot, right? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the sacraments. That is to say, the four pillars in the Christian life are scripture, being deeply rooted in it. Number two, the fellowship, you know, having a holy fellowship with other believers in the church. Number three, is this understanding of the the sacramental life. And number four is this understanding of prayer, both communal and private prayer. I haven't said a lot about communal prayer, but just to simply add that, you know, again, the book of Hebrews said we are to, to assemble, to assemble regularly, unlike the habit of some. In other words, there were some who weren't assembling regularly, right? We are to assemble for these prayers. Now, most of us think prayers, we immediately think of the Mass. But don't forget that a baptism is a liturgy, that coming together for just just prayer together is liturgical, that coming together for a penance service or for coming together for any, any number of other types of liturgies are part of this too. The church prays the liturgy of the hours. Sometimes people come together and join for that. So all of these are ways of saying that there's a communal, and a personal prayer life that we're expected to have. Four pillars of the Christian life, a recipe for readiness for who will stand when God appears. We talked about, first of all, those active purgations, which are, these are the things that we can say, look, I'm going to follow this recipe for readiness. I'm going to keep these four pillars active and alive in my life. But we also need to accept that in this life, we'll need some passive purifications that do come from God, that are necessary, but we would not never be able to or want to do them ourselves. But God brings us through them anyway. I didn't talk so much about that, except to say that in getting us ready, those are necessary. But then so are these basic four pillars. And so much is just summed up by them. So here's your recipe. You know, not hard. Four points right there in Scripture. The four pillars of the Christian life, a recipe for readiness. The Lord is coming. At Christmas, yes, but he's also coming in the second coming, either us to him or we to him. So these would be the four things. So I want to ask for some questions or feedback, whether about this topic or if you have some other questions. And I guess I'll ask Peter or Father to kind of moderate that. Thank you, Monsignor. Very helpful. We were, as a staff, looking at that was that very passage and really actually as a a whole institute following Pentecost, of course, this year. And so having you go through those is is, is super helpful. We do have a couple of questions coming in. Monsignor, the first one, actually, I'm going to preempt the first one with a clarification or question of my own. And that is, 
you were talking about the ladies, your parish praying over you and stuff like that. And some people may not know of your particular pastoral assignment. And so maybe you could share that with everybody. Yeah, you know, um, I've been in largely African-American parishes for most of my priesthood. The masses are, we don't call them charismatic, they just call it mass. But, you know, there's a lot of (laughs) sense of the power of the spirit and joy and a real sense that, um, you know, prayer isn't just something, I'll pray for you and then walk away and forget. Right now, we're going to pray right here. I mean, there's a certain sense of anointing that people say, look, we got to pray for this man. He's going through a hard time right now. So, yeah, they would just surround me. And also at St. Thomas More, they would surround me with prayer and uh, literally uh, lay hands and pray over me. And so these are things that are kind of in the charism, what we sometimes call the charismatic tradition. But for most African-Americans, they just call it faith. They just call it having church. But that's the context. Yeah. Thank you, Monsignor. And also, I, I, well, I first met Monsignor, of course, at the traditional Latin mass there in Washington, D.C., which he also serves very beautifully. So, Monsignor, the, the first question coming in is, you spoke about the communal life, but this is really lacking in my parish. And in every parish I have been par- a part of, my priests have never been interested. This is really what I, instead of going, this is really what I love about the ICC. What can I do to cultivate communal living in my parish? Yeah, well, do it. Uh, now, what I mean by that is that I have a group of women, for example, who get on get on the phone or online like Zoom like this every morning and they pray for 20 minutes and they support each other every morning. I have other groups that pray, you know, once a week. There's other, you know, activities and things you can get involved with in the parish. Now, the problem, I think, with the priest is it's less so of a problem today, but it, it's still a problem, namely that there's a lot of people and maybe one or two priests. So the priest can't simply go to every meeting and be involved in every situation. But that's why we need community. We can't just see it as something that the priest has to lead, but rather that people say, look, this is important. Let's get a prayer group together. And, you know, you need the guidance and oversight of, of a priest, I think. You don't want to, you know, kind of get off off target. But, but fundamentally, you want to just say, look, this is important. And many of our parishes are big and somewhat impersonal. And that's why we need smaller groups that gather toward each other. So, I, I mean, I don't mean to sound, you know, dismissive of the question, but just the opposite when I say, if you want community, make it. Go out there, seek others. In my priesthood, I have five priests that I routinely gather with on a day off, and it's kind of a Yesu Caritas group. But these five priests, these, that I, these other four priests with me, we know everything about each other. We pray, we talk about the struggles, we're, we're, we're supportive. It's, it's always, these are the things that, you know, we all need in life, and you sort of have to make it happen. At one point in my life, as a young priest, I was just going home on my day off to stay with my parents at their house. But it was finally said to me, look, you need to make some brotherhood with your brother priest and maybe going home to your parents. I would go home to also on Sunday for dinner. They said, maybe go home on Sunday for dinner, but find priest and begin to form friendships there. And I've also had in my life some good lay friends who know everything about me. and They know how to tell me, yeah, don't do, don't, don't do that. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so these are the kinds of things that we have to make happen. We can't just wait for the parish to make it happen. Yeah. You, you are the parish. Okay, enough said. Inez, you want to take yourself off the mute there? My question refers to a passive and act, active uh, purification. Active purification is very clear, but with passive purification, does it also require an active role? I'm thinking about Fulton Sheen saying when he went by a hospital 
saying how much suffering was being lost in there, was being wasted in there. Yeah, his famous line was, the worst thing in the world isn't suffering, it's wasted suffering. Suffering that we don't give to God. No, certainly even when we're undergoing what we might call passive purification, we have to, by faith, lay hold of them and say, Lord, I don't like this. Right now, it seems that you've asked me to endure this, maybe the death of a loved one or a health thing or a financial issue. Lord, I I, I have to go through this, but I, I just ask you to go with me. But you go through it as a woman or a man of faith. That's certainly required because, yeah, passive purifications aren't much good if we don't somehow say, look, I, I accept this. Acceptance is a very interesting word. It doesn't mean I'm happy about it or approving. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm in despair that it'll never go away. It just means that for now I know I need to endure some of this and just keep walking with the Lord. Monsignor, Susie's uh, writing in regarding uh, your comment about you know spiritual communion and things, but uh, from a different vantage point saying, and I think this is COVID related, I'm, that's how I'm reading the, the question. At my parish, we are told a spiritual communion is equivalent to receiving. How do we distinguish this from actually receiving? It seems to me that staying away from the mass and just saying, just praying a spiritual communion is not going to feed your soul. Yeah, no, I mean, come on. I don't think we should say that spiritual communion is the same or just as it is no, no better or worse than regular communion. Obviously, the Lord set it up that we should actually receive communion. You know, we are body persons. We don't, we don't just have a soul floating around somewhere. We have a body and the Lord addresses us with both elements. And we are expected, you know, to show up to mass, not to just say, I'll be with you in spirit. And likewise, we're expected to actually receive communion, all, communion. but all the sacraments you might notice touch the body. We pour water. We don't just say, I think that you should be baptized. And so I call on the spiritual waters to come upon your head. Well, no, there's no such thing as a virtual baptism. Likewise, we're expected not to just do confession over the phone or Zoom. We're expected to be present so that there can be, again, a laying out of hands, that personal interaction. Same with, obviously, the Eucharist. You can't receive Holy Communion at home. Now, the idea of a spiritual communion is a beautiful idea. And if you really can't receive communion, I mean, really, not just, well, I'm a little anxious or whatever. But if you really can't, you can make a spiritual communion and that brings you graces. But to say that they're identical to actually receiving communion, I don't think it's appropriate or proper. The Lord never spoke of these things. He just said, come on, eat my flesh and drink my blood. So I'm a little testy about that topic because I think some people have taken it now to say, you know, it's all just theoretical and, you know, no, it's. Every sacrament touches the body, and there's a reason for that. Thanks, Monsignor. That's like one of these times where the pendulum maybe has now swung a little too far in the opposite direction from before. Teresa, go ahead. My father, with the first topic of the teaching of the apostles, you focused on it being scripture, but can it also be understood that like the teaching of the bishops, the pope, priests, that kind of like walk, um, yeah. learning from those who have immerse themselves in scripture. I'm glad you mentioned that. Thanks, Teresa. I think there's some distinctions to make here. Clearly, when we say scripture, I should mention, you know, in other words, also all the doctrinal dogmatic, you know, the sacred tradition that comes to us. For, I'll give you a quick example. Tell me, what's sacred tradition? Well, I say, well, even the Protestants follow this one. They worship on Sunday, not Saturday. We don't know where that happened. We don't know. That's not written in the Bible that one day the apostles decreed we're all going to start fulfilling the, the Sabbath now on Sunday, but we all do. 
it just comes sort of out from the ancient traditions of the church. There's just some things that the church teaches because we've always taught them, not because there's some you know verse in the scripture. Now, it doesn't contradict scripture, but it isn't simply there. Now, but I want to say that when it comes to the idea that you were raising about, we, so we want to say that teaching of the apostles would include the magisterium, the doctrines and the dogmas. But I also want to make a distinction here because I'm afraid that some people have they tend to overly localize the magisterium. That it's about what the bishops are saying today, or this or that time. It's the whole teaching that's come forward to us from the ancient church all the way toward the forward. So therefore, a certain individual pope or bishop may say something, but that is not meant to eclipse everything that's ever been said before. It's meant to be interpreted in the light of that tradition. And if there is an error, it should be corrected. So even there, we want to be careful with the word, the magisterium, because I think some people think, well, Pope Francis said, or Bishop so-and-so, and that's good, whatever. But the point is, how does it comport with the magisterium that's much older and deeper and richer than just one, one bishop or one pope or one priest or somebody saying something like that? I hope that covers just to make a few distinctions, but you're exactly right. I don't mean to exclude in any way all the doctrines and dogmas of the councils and things that have come and have certainly flowed from Scripture, but also point back to it. We don't usually allow follow-up questions, but Teresa, I'm going to ask you in your case. Thank because you, because you're Because you're Teresa. You know what I mean? Thank you. And besides uh, yeah, that, yeah. this is a time where it's just a, we're just in the big bear hug of the ICC right now. A little bit of fuzzies, you know, warm fuzzies are good once in a while. So go ahead. All right. So the follow-up question is, is kind of like, so that's like the sense of fidein, that the sense of the faithful is not just what we as the faithful today are doing, but it's the faithful of the church or the communion of saints. I wouldn't want to simply equate the census of fidelium with the magisterium. No, no. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, I, I prefer the term magisterium, but you're right. I mean, there's a certain sense of the faithful, which has, you know, come down through the centuries, which is certainly doctrin doctrinally prescribed by the magisterium. And there's also, again, I think so there's a lot of other things like the traditions. I was asked the other day, why wasn't St. Gertrude canonized. Well, she was. The Pope simply acknowledged at the time that she is so venerated throughout so many parts of Europe for 300 years now that what am I supposed to do? You know, what? who needs a process? She's a saint. And he just declared her a saint. But, you know, so there can be that sense of the faithful that emerges and um, that is recognized by the church, but it is fundamentally still under the authority of the bishops. Monsignor, Joan is writing in regarding the scriptures, but also you're talking about praying the office. And she, and she says, I pray one of the offices each day. I don't always understand the psalm or the context. Should I just say the words and keep on going? And I'm just going to apply that then to what you're saying about reading scripture, because I think that happens a lot of times for people. They want to read the Bible, but they get in there and it's like a lot of times it's hard to understand. Yeah. You know, there's in, in the office, if you, if you notice it carefully, there are things that we don't see out loud. There's just sort of text that is up there. There's a, usually a one-line interpretation of the psalm. Like, for example, Hezekiah Mace, you know, well, there you go, Hezekiah. But, you know, Eusebius or some of the ancient fathers of the church will say, this psalm is spoken by Christ on the cross, or this psalm represents the passion of Jesus, or this psalm speaks to the 
universality of the church. So in other words, there's sometimes a little interpretive key that can be given to you right there in the office. And then secondly, there's usually a a little title that's given to it. And that helps too. But then you do have a lot of ancient commentaries on the Psalms by most of the fathers of the church, say many, not most, but who have commentaries. And if you want to, you know, study a little bit, there are some good commentaries out there on the Psalms and other things. So, but I, I think that I have found over the years, there are certain lines that I've, I've never really thought, oh, gee, what does that mean? But over the years, little by little, I, I start to learn what they mean. So keep praying it. Stay in this mind of the church and things kind of repeat and refresh and suddenly you have an insight you didn't have before. We're going to close, as I did last week, with a little reading from one of the church fathers. I have St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who I always love St. Bernard. This is very beautiful. So those that can stay with us for just a moment, you're welcome to do so, Monsignor. Thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. St. Bernard says this. We know that there are three comings of the Lord. The third lies between the other two. It is invisible, while the other two are visible. In the first coming, he was seen on earth, dwelling among men. He himself testifies that they saw him and hated him. In the final coming, all flesh will see the salvation of our God, and they will look on him whom they pierced. The intermediate coming is a hidden one. In it, only the elect see the Lord within their own selves, and they are saved. In his first coming, our Lord came in our flesh and in our weakness. In this middle coming, he comes in spirit and in power. In the final coming, he will be seen in glory and majesty. In case someone should think that what we say about this middle coming is sheer invention, Listen to what our Lord himself says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. There is another passage of scripture which reads, he who fears God will do good. But something further has been said about the one who loves. That is that he will keep God's word. Where is God's word to be kept? Obviously in the heart, as the prophet says, I have hidden your words in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Keep God's word in this way. Let it enter into your very being. Let it take possession of your desires and your whole way of life. Feed on goodness and your soul will delight in its richness. Remember to eat your bread or your heart will wither away. Fill your soul with richness and strength because this coming lies between the other two It is like a road on which we travel from the first coming to the last. In the first, Christ was our redemption. In the last, he will appear as our life. In the middle coming, he is our rest and our consolation. If you keep the word of God in this way, it will also keep you. The son with the father will come to you. The great prophet who will build the new Jerusalem will come. The one who makes all things new. This coming will fulfill what is written. As we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, we shall also bear the likeness of the heavenly man. Just as Adam's sin spread through all of mankind and took hold of all, so Christ who created and redeemed all will glorify all once he takes possession of all. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.